Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, the John that's back almost to the end of your Bible. We're in the season of Lent, but so far in the season of Lent, we've read a bunch of wonderful little devotionals that many of you have written um, that have come to us in our email or we've found online. But in our sermons, we've just continued in Matthew until the last couple of weeks when you had guest ministers. I think it's time to turn our attention to the themes of Lent for a little last, for the last few weeks before Easter. Repentance, that's what Lent's about. Faith in the work of Christ, that's what Lent's about. And those things are at the heart of the gospel. They're also at the heart of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate this morning. So we're going to return to a familiar text which addresses our struggle with sin and our experience of God's grace in Jesus. Let me read it. 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5 and reading down into chapter 2 through verse 2. 1 John 1, 5 to 2, 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father In our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There we'll end our reading. (coughs) Two great truths woven through these verses. If I may just set them before you as simply as I know how. The first is this. Don't kid yourself about sin. Don't kid yourself about sin. As you know, my daughter is a school teacher, and Jane and I have always enjoyed that for kindergarten stories come home almost every day. And some of the best ones are the stories that kids make up to excuse their failures. We've all heard the dog ate my homework. Let me tell you, that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's wonderful. You can talk to her sometime about it. But that's what we find here in verses 5 to 10. Bogus claims which people make to to excuse their sin. As we consider these claims, we need to hear the message loud and clear. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself about sin. Actually, there are three kinds of things which people say to cover their sin. These, in these verses, they all begin with the words, if we claim or if we say. We find that in verse eight, 6 and in verse 8 
and verse 10. Three different claims that people make to kid ourselves about our sin. The first, first some claim that sin doesn't matter. We read that in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. In the Apostle John's day, a teaching called Gnosticism was beginning to appear. And this is the kind of thing the Gnostics would say. The early Gnostics, along with the Greek philosophers of all kinds, believed that the body was a mere container, a feeble, terrible container, in which the wonderful human spirit lived. But a person's spirit could never be contaminated by the body. It didn't really matter what you did with the body. All that mattered was the spirit. The Apostle, John had to, uh, Apostle Paul had to deal with the same thing that John is dealing with here. And, and, and the Apostle Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 6. He seems to quote these folks who say, everything is permissible. In other words, sin doesn't matter. What you do with your body doesn't matter. And the truth is, such views are still around. Not just among resurgent Gnostics, though there are those. Christians say this kind of thing. What I do, what I do with my body doesn't matter as long as my heart is right. They'll even quote your scripture on this. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God, he looks at my heart. So over the years, I found myself arguing with young people who openly tried to defend to me their, their sexual relationships outside of marriage because it didn't matter. And I found myself talking to people who leave their spouse, divorce their spouse, spouse for someone else because God wants me happy inside. And, and what I do with my body doesn't matter if I'm happy inside. In so many different ways, this old lie is still used. Sin doesn't really matter. Oh, don't kid yourself. John's answer is clear and simple. God is light. He is pure and holy and righteous and true. And sin is darkness. It's the antithesis of purity and holiness and righteousness and truth. Therefore, you cannot have fellowship with God who is light while you're walking in the darkness of sin. It just doesn't work. You're kidding yourself. Light and darkness cannot coexist. Actually, the text doesn't just say you're kidding yourself. It says you are a liar if you think sin doesn't matter. Or to use Jesus' words, you hypocrite. Then there's a second claim that people make, and it's bolder still. It says sin doesn't really exist. Sin doesn't really exist. We find this in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, this is different than just denying that you've sinned. This is denying that sin exists. Now, we're not sure what form this idea arose, in what form this idea arose in John's day, but there are at least two ways in which it appears today. This is the idea that drives the secular thinking of our day. There's no such thing as sin. People have called things sin in the past, they would say, because they were caught up with oppressive religious ideas or because they were unenlightened 
and misunderstood what human behavior is like. They reasoned there is no God, therefore we're just another species of animal in the jungle. Therefore whatever happens, happens. It's not sin, it's just natural behavior for the human animal. Folks, make no mistake, you live in this culture. You breathe the cultural air. Every time you hear its songs and see the movies and read the magazines and have conversations, if we're not careful, we, we will soon th- think this way and, 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 and act this way. Sin just doesn't exist. It's just how I am. It's not right or wrong. Actually, there's a Christian version of this claim, too. It's often called perfectionism. These folks believe that there's a second work of grace, that God saves us, but then he does another great thing in us later, which eradicates the sin nature, making us instantly perfect. Sometimes this experience is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people are referring to something else when they talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John Wesley called it perfect love taking over in our life. But whatever you call it, they're talking about a life in which sin no longer exists. Well, the apostle's answer to this view is simple. He says, you're kidding yourself. Really, you're kidding yourself. You see it there in verse 8. If you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself. The truth is not in you. In order to hold such a view that sin doesn't exist, you have to redefine sin. The secular crowd does it by calling every perverse, immoral thing normal. The perfectionist crowd does it by saying that only really serious sin, like murdering somebody or conscious rebellion, only that would be sin. But little lies and thinking evil thoughts and That's not sin. But the answer is not in redefining sin, pretending it doesn't exist. The answer is a life of confession and forgiveness and restoration. That's the normal Christian life. Calling sin what God calls it, confessing it as sin, and continually turning away from it, like we did when we first believed, and trusting in God's grace for forgiveness as we did at the beginning. Don't kid yourself. Sin is still a force to be reckoned with, both in the world and in you and me. Well, the third claim people make is simply to say, I haven't sinned. Oh, sin exists, it's out there, but I haven't sinned. We see that in verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, this is the claim of the self-righteous. I'm okay. But the whole gospel is built on the premise that we are not okay. That no one understands and seeks God. That all have sinned and come and fallen short of the glory of God. So to say, I'm okay, I'm not guilty of sin, is to simply call God a liar because he says we are. Indeed, even for the Christian to say, I don't ever sin is to deny the way God's word characterizes the Christian life. In contrast to the I have arrived attitude, listen to how the apostle Paul talks about 
his life and our lives in, in Romans 7. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it. It is sin living in me that does it. What a wretched man I am. So the J.C. Ryle, the historic bishop, described the uh, Christian life this way. He said that it's a holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling against sin. But the self-righteous see no such conflict within. They're convinced I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Such comfortable feelings about oneself are not based on the truth of God's word. They're self-delusion. You're kidding yourself. Worse, you're calling God a liar. What folly. All these ways of evading the reality of our sin. But this morning I want to go on and talk about the good news. For there's a solution, and that brings us to our second point. Jesus defends us before the Father. Jesus defends us before the Father. Perhaps the reason we tend to kid ourselves about our sin is the bitter realization that if we are honest about it, we are utterly defenseless. We cannot plead ignorance or point to some mitigating circumstances. No, we have disobeyed knowingly, intentionally, without excuse, without any coercion. We are guilty. No wonder we search for creative ways to evade the truth. For the truth about our sin thrusts us into a hopeless, utter despair. The kind of guilt that causes people to numb the pain with drugs or just give up on life altogether. And folks, Christians are not immune from such despair. I know I've been there too. In fact, that's where we would all live all the time except for this great truth. Jesus defends us before the Father. In verses 1 and 2, this great comfort is set before us by means of two key words, two titles for Jesus. The first in verse 1, he's called our advocate. That's kind of veiled in the New International Version that I read because it translates that one word as one who speaks in our defense. The word is advocate. The original word, the root of the word means one called alongside to help. This is the word Jesus used when he described the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you alone. I will send you a comforter. That's the word. One called alongside to help you. But the point here is not that the Holy Spirit coming alongside to help us. It is Jesus coming alongside us to take up our cause in the courtroom of heaven before the Father. 
The point here is not the Holy Spirit helping us. It's also having an advocate, having a defense attorney, one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. Romans 8 says he intercedes for us before the Father. Folks, this is a wonderful truth in itself. We cannot stand before God on our own. We are sinners. But Jesus is the righteous one in whom God delights. Jesus is the one of whom God said from heaven, thundered from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now that son of God speaks up to the father on our behalf. Oh, but this alone is not what gives us comfort for really what defense could Jesus bring? I mean, it's great to have a defense attorney, but if you're so obviously guilty that there's no escaping it, what can he say? So what defense could Jesus bring? Jesus cannot say, Father, they didn't know it was sin. God knows that we knew. He cannot say, Father, they meant well. God can read our hearts. He knows we meant to do exactly what we did, and it was not good. He, Jesus cannot say, well, Father, it didn't hurt anyone else, for ultimately all sin is against God. He's the one who's offended most. So what good is it to have the best defense attorney if all the evidence is against us? Well, that brings us to the second key title of Jesus here. In verse 2, he's called the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation, that's a $2 word, isn't it? No wonder the NIV translates it. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. We would say he's the, the one who brings satisfaction for our sins. Propitiation is a perfectly good word. It means to turn away wrath. It means to placate anger and restore goodwill. This is a concept which many, many, many modern people find offensive. They point to various, various pagan gods, pagan religions where their gods have an irrational anger that flares up without any cause and can only be propitiated, can only be turned away by some costly sacrifice. And so in the name of placating such gods, all kinds of cruel, inhuman actions have taken place. Certainly such an idea is unworthy of the God of the Bible. For you see, the problem here is not God's irrational temper. The problem is God's absolutely holy justice. The problem is not some ugly flaw in God's character that we must pamper him. The problem is the absolute perfection of his character, which shows us to be terribly sinful. And this plan for Jesus to become the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice that satisfies and turns away God's wrath, that plan did not originate in some irrational, cruel fit of rage on God's part. No, it originated in the infinite love that God has for us. The great theologian John Murray 
Put it this way. The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this. That God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he by his blood should make provision for the removal of this wrath. It was Christ's work to deal with God's wrath so that the ones God loved would no longer be the objects of his wrath that love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. For this purpose, you see, Jesus came into the world. For this, he endured abject humiliation. For this, he willingly suffered on the cross until he died, that he and the Father might forgive and restore us to fellowship with himself. Pastor Lincoln Duncan put it this way. He said, the picture is not Jesus, the loving and kind and gracious and merciful defense attorney, standing before this giant ogre in the sky who can't wait to cast sinners into hell, who has not a shred of love in his heart. And Jesus coaxing this strict and judgmental hanging judge into showing mercy on his people. That is not the picture at all. It is not love saying to justice, show mercy. No, when Jesus, the advocate, stands before the Father, it is justice standing before love and saying, you may show mercy justly because I have taken the punishment. Let me say that again. When Jesus, the advocate, stands before the Father, it is not love saying to the Father's justice, please show mercy. No, it is justice standing before the loving Father saying, you may now show mercy without compromising your holiness because I, Jesus, have satisfied, propitiated your justice. Charles Wesley described it well in his wonderful hymn. In one of the verses he says, Five, speaking of Jesus, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Let not that ransomed sinner die. This is a glorious truth held before us in 1 John 2. Jesus, who on the cross became the propitiation, the satisfaction, the atonement for our sins, now stands before the Father as our advocate. He is not pleading our righteousness, our good intentions, or even our ignorance. No, he is pleading God's justice pleading that his payment for sin, the payment he himself, the righteous one, paid by his life, that's enough. Pleading with the Father whose great grace decreed such a plan of salvation, pleading the com completion of God's work in us in spite of our sin. Such intercession is certain to be heard 
For the one who defends us before the Father is Jesus, his son. You see, this is why we can come confessing, admitting our sin, pleading guilty without fear. Because as we see in verse 9, God is faithful and just. Oh, we aren't faithful, but he is. So in faithfulness to his promises, and with justice satisfied by Christ's death and resurrection, he forgives our sins and purifies us from all unrighteousness. In verse 1, the elderly apostle John writes, Little children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So that you will not sin. Oh, some have used these great truths as a license to sin, but that's not the point. That's not God's intention. Indeed, think about it. When are we most likely to continue in sin? We will continue to live in sin when we live in self-delusion and refuse to face what we know to be true. So don't kid yourself about your sin. You're not kidding anyone else. You're certainly not kidding God. And we also continue in our sin when we've lost all hope. When in despair we say, well, what difference does it make anyway? I'm already gone. I've already crossed the line. I'm already hopeless. What difference does it make? Well, I tell you this morning, it matters to Jesus who defends us before the Father. He's the one who paid for our sin with his own blood. He has now become our advocate, not pleading our worthiness. We're not worthy. Pleading his worthiness and his work on our behalf. So come to the table. You broken, weary, sin-scarred saints, come to the table. Come and remember what Jesus has done for you. He who knew no sin took your sin upon himself and suffered God's just sentence of death. It's paid. Come confident that the Father will treat you like he treats Jesus, who died in your place and rose from the dead and now stands before the Father, pleading for you. And come with a thankful heart, not trying to earn God's favor, but fill with gratitude that God has already shown you mercy that you never deserved, shown you favor because of Jesus' sacrifice for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we've heard the gospel lots of times, some of us since we were little children. And it gets to be a cliche sometimes to us. And yet, Father, when we look honestly at ourselves and see that we have so far to go and that our life is so far from being sinless, where can we turn? What hope do we have? Father, we recognize we have no hope but the hope of the gospel, the only hope we've had from the beginning.
And so we thank you, Lord, for reminding us of those things in this text. Give us faith, Lord, to trust you anew. In Christ's name we pray.